0: What if the Enclave survived in Fallout 76? Chapter 1, 12 Seconds to Midnight It's 2am on the morning of October 15th, 2077. The stars that litter the night sky are shining peacefully over the heart of West Virginia in these quiet hours. But far down below that calm sky, underneath the pristine eye-pleasing sight of the White Springs Resort, something sinister is transpiring. In the cold, silent confines of a secret government bunker beneath the resort, someone is busy toiling away at a terminal. The contents of this terminal are nothing more than some of the most important mechanisms to the ultimate survival and success of the government, or the enclave, the difference being of no consequence. The information contained on the terminal is that of the early warning systems for a nuclear attack, solely for the use of the executive branch of the United States government. Each night for the past week, someone has been accessing the terminal in the dead of night, removing a single name off the list each time, ensuring that the warnings will never reach their intended recipients. This effort is being carried out with the intent to prevent any of this man's superiors from reaching the safety of the bunker when nuclear fire engulfs the world, and make no mistake, to him it is a matter of when, not if. Very few hold as much hatred towards the red shadow that is China as much as this man. Embodying the American propagandist view to the fullest, his hatred is more than that of a nation to its enemy. It's a little boy's hatred from seeing his father abandon him in favor of that very shadow. A hatred that brewed inside him for years, inflated by shame and ostracization, consuming and corrupting everything this hatred served to self-validate every perceived evil of the Red Chinese, including his complete confidence in the inevitability of their nuclear attack. By removing each name from the list and damning each to their fate, the line of succession would dictate him to be in complete command, not only satiating his lust for power, but granting him the ability to unleash the full power of the atom upon China. Having made it this far, and seeing the realization of his dreams within his grasp. As he wipes another name off the list, he begins to smile a sinister smile, that of the devil claiming another soul. His utter victory is nothing but ensured. However, fate disagrees with this assertion. As such would have it, there is someone else that can undo everything he has planned. Across the country, even further, Past the west coast, far out in the Pacific Ocean, beyond the visible horizon from land, sits a towering oil rig, the main base of the enclave. At just past 11pm, the holes are also silent, save for the clacking of keys in the server room. Corporal Lawson has been on night watch for the past hour, doing the whole of absolutely nothing. Although his job is to watch for intrusion or malfunction, it's not like anyone would actually be stupid enough to hack into the Enclave's network. This shift is just like all the others, a pointless waste of time that's best sped through. But after about half an hour of looking at the unchanging screen, he finally remembers the special order he'd been given the previous day, to check the integrity of all the system protocols. It was strange being given this order, as checks like this were normally only carried out every three months, and the last one was only a week ago. This wasn't the first thing out of sort as of late either. It's as though command is getting more cautious lately. Not that it really matters, as long as it's something to do, apart from mindlessly flicking through the same screens, looking for even the slightest of changes. After nearly three hours of sending test signals through each system, waiting for green on each confirmation, Lawson makes it to the presidential cabinet's nuclear alarm system. Expecting the same response as everything else, Upon seeing the stream of error codes, he simply sits there frozen. Unsure of what to do, he jumps out of his chair and rushes to wake his CO.
1: Sir, you better see this.
0: Within two minutes, his CO was looking at the same screen as he had been. Within 10 minutes, half the rig is awake, rushing all over the place trying to figure out what the hell is going on. There's no chance it could have been a fault on the receiving end. That could cause one person to not receive the alert, but four of the highest ranking members of government that could cause the Enclave's entire plan to fail. No, this was sabotage. At first, conclusions snapped to an outside hack, but internal scanning reports no compromised networks. If not outside interference, it has to be internal, and the only ones with access to change anything on that list are the very people on it. Obviously, it's someone looking to rise up the line of succession, and that provided three suspects, but this could be remedied exceptionally quickly. With one call to the Congressional Bunker in Appalachia, it's confirmed that the only cabinet member to be within the bunker since the last protocol check is Thomas Eckhart, the Secretary of Agriculture. It's clear what has to be done. Eckhart was useful for a time, but his usefulness has run out. The following day, all across the country, people waked a news broadcast detailing that Thomas Eckhart, the Secretary of Agriculture, has been found at his residence, dead by suicide with two bullets through his skull. With the elimination of the infection at its source, the nuclear alarm system is promptly restored to be ready for nuclear war, and just in time too. Not a week later, on the early morning of October 23rd, the situation begins devolving rapidly. Defense Command radio channels are flooded with reports coming in from all over the west coast of unidentified airborne and submerged objects. Simultaneously, Chinese radio chatter spikes and it becomes clear that something big is about to happen.
2: Uh, yes sir, we have reason to believe they're planning something. Yes, we are at DEFCON too.
0: In the short hours that pass as SAC and NORAD scramble to prepare for the worst and coordinate defense, it happens.
2: Sir, so we have probable launches from the Chinese.
0: Ten minutes later, NORAD confirms the launches.
2: We have confirmed birds in the air. I repeat, birds are in the air. We are at DEFCON
0: 1. The nuclear alert goes off for all cabinet members before they rush to the
2: nearest bunker. Order authenticated. Response scenario. Mike. X-Ray. Charlie. November. Niner. One. Ready. Launch. oh may God have mercy
0: Sirens all across the United States soon whirr and scream, sending the whole country into panic. The military tries to maintain order with the airways flooded and civilians rushing into underground vaults, looting, running to desperately find somewhere, anywhere that might save them. All while missiles fly overhead towards the enemy and towards them, and in a single moment, it all goes silent.
2: Enough. Life is weighing you down, that you're chained to a miserable job, your loveless marriage, and your oversized waist? Well, now there's a solution to one of those problems Nuca Cola Light. Now, with 60% less lead and added helium, you'll feel the pounds just fly away. So the next time you're at your local grocery store, remember.
0: Chapter 2, Orders. The world lies in ruins, its surface scorched and charred, the lucky ones underground in a vault or dead from the blast, the rest just in shock from the detonations. For the Enclave at least, everything seems to have worked out. Almost all of their bases are giving green lights, most important save the rig itself being the Congressional Bunker in Appalachia. The bunker itself is intact, but the most important piece is the residence of the bunker. The cowering mass of people at the entrance are directed through orientation, with everyone being put into smaller groups. All of the senators are led downstairs, and although some are skeptical, have no other choice. But as the scenery becomes increasingly unnerving, finally ending in what looks like a torture room with armed soldiers some begin questioning their guides before all of them are swiftly removed. The rest of the entries into the vault have their identity confirmed and are sent to their rooms. Once reviewed, the numbers are quite impressive. Not only did every single cabinet member make it to the bunker, including the newly sworn in Secretary of Agriculture, but their military escorts added onto the already existing force in the bunker reaches almost full capacity. The only slight hiccup was the Secretary of the Interior being hit by shrapnel from one of the blasts on the way in. Luckily the soldiers escorting everyone inside assisted him in getting to the medbay quickly. With this outcome, there's no chance of failure. The chain of command remains fully intact. Every order will flow perfectly down it to be carried out perfectly by the small army residing in the bunker. Had Eckhart got his way, there's no telling what chaos he could have sowed. Cutting communications, purging half the bunker, probably even destroying the entire region. To what extent, no one knows, but the world is certainly better off with him the ground. Having been passed through the long and tedious introduction, the cabinet members are all directed through the maze of expansive rooms and hallways that they would no doubt get lost in without a guide. The cabinet members, save for the recovering Secretary of the Interior, finally reach the cabinet room, upon which they sit down and are greeted by a radio call from the President of the United States himself, safe and sound on the oil rig. As the Speaker of the House relays the impressive state of the bunker to the President, it's immediately clear to both parties there's something awry with the communication link, producing a large amount of static, cutting out every few dozen seconds. Still, it's enough to understand each other and the technicians offer plenty of easily fixable explanations as to the problem, but still the president seems to be very displeased, politely outlining the importance of keeping communications. I
2: don't trust you fucking morons to wipe your own asses without my supervision. You certainly aren't getting past the DEFCON lock on the nuclear silos without override from here or Raven Rock.
0: Strangely, not much else is discussed. Apart from the formalities, it seems as though the only purpose was to report the status of the bunker. What makes it even stranger, as the cabinet members are hastily led out of the room, they walk past a group of soldiers, maybe 9 or 10 of them, all heading into the room they just exited. Based on their neat dress uniforms covered in medals, they had to be high ranking. Even so, many wonder what business they have in the cabinet room, and what was so important that the president's cabinet had to be pushed out of the room in favor of that herd of overdressed toy soldiers. As the soldiers sit down in the room, they soon find out what is so important. Once the room is quiet, the president wastes no time getting to the point. Plainly stating,
2: Although the world has been ravaged by nuclear weapons, their satellites have confirmed China to be completely decimated, we are still at war. Not with any foreign country, though I'm sure the taint of Communism will have made its way to Virginia somehow. But in truth, we're at war with our own countrymen, with the monsters and mutants that will arise from the nuclear ash. Even as we speak, these monsters will be forming from the former people and animals of the region. Which is why every second counts. Why I'm favoring generals over my own cabinet. While stability can be assured, all of them will be on extended leave. The rebuilding of this great nation rests completely on Apple paving the way, and the missile silos that currently have not launched their payloads being secure, or if need be, destroyed. Then and only then can the cabinet members be assisted with their part of the plan.
0: To the President's surprise, almost all of the generals are skeptical, if not outright critical of the idea of worrying about the nuclear silos with the world in its current state. Trying exceptionally hard not to show any of his immense annoyance at many of his senior military officers disagreeing with his goal, he rationalizes the control of the silos as a show of force to the locals, preventing hostilities and reducing casualties further pointing out that only one needs to be secured, while the rest just need to be rendered inoperable. Still, the explanation is met with more skepticism, but it holds enough credibility to ensure the orders will be followed to the letter. With his orders finally being met with agreement, the President promptly ends the meeting, letting the generals decide how to proceed. General Swarford, one of the only two lieutenant generals in the bunker, takes charge, directing the rest of the military wing, in the command center, Swarford begins asking about reports from the surface, beginning with the number of confirmed strikes in the region, following up with the radiation levels. He's informed that very few missiles actually hit the region, resulting in currently very minor radiation, if any in most parts. Thinking carefully, Swarford asks to see the satellite view of the region, focusing on the area between them and the silos, all while the rest of the generals stand behind him feeling completely useless. Swarford looks over the map multiple times, finally coming to the conclusion of using the train line that passes near the three missile silos. This is met with mixed reception, many questioning the amount of attention using the line would
2: bring. Swarford calmly replies, Well, I am not fond of the president's plan to reclaim the silos, and classifying the situation as a war is at best reckless. He was right about one thing, every second counts. As we speak, the region will likely be in shock, unsure of what to do, trying to find help, but that won't last much longer. As food and water disappear and radiation sets in, desperation will come with it. Even the personnel at the silos, of whom are necessary for a successful launch, given no missiles were launched, we have to assume they aren't receiving our signals. And thanks to some genius confining our communications to one way, we'll have to check on them in person so they don't abandon their posts.
0: Before anyone can say anything in response, Swarford continues. And speaking of the personnel at the silos, the matter of expanding our forces needs to be brought up. With our garrison here at 120 troops, and Site-J reporting theirs at 51 commandos, we have nowhere near enough forces to reclaim the region. So I will be putting out an order for all radio operators
2: and troops in the field to make contact with any remaining military forces and report any military equipment. Frankly, I do not know where we're going to house these reinforcements, but that is something that can be solved later.
0: Any questions? Most seem content with the explanation given, some consider Swarford's approach to be too headstrong however, finding greatest fault in the lack of a plan for reinforcements. Another suggests using the resort as a base, but is reminded of their need for secrecy. With the resort patrons likely to hang around for a while, and the number of troops needed to properly defend a place such as that. Before the arguing can start, Swarford quickly announces the matter to be closed until further notice. Many would use this as further evidence to prove how little thought had gone into this plan, but given Swarford outranks everyone else, aside from General Beck, who stays silent, no one else can further interject. General Swarford then leaves the room and returns shortly with the entire bunker's garrison, with all of them barely managing to cram into the room. He subsequently goes over his plan for the operation. Given that
2: there are three launch facilities and time is of the essence, three squads of ten including two engineers and two power armor units in each will be deployed. We will also need one general accompanied with power armor escort to visit all of the
0: sites to gain entry. Each team will go after their coinciding silo. Team Bravo and Charlie will head straight from the bunker to the train yard 20 minutes due north while Team Alpha makes the long hike northeast to site Alpha. From the train yard, Team Charlie will escort the General south to site Charlie just off the rail line, while Team Bravo proceed north, moving west to site Bravo once reaching the end of the line. The General will then be
2: escorted there and finally end with Alpha. Be aware there will be obstacles along the entire line. Now I just need volunteers.
0: Those who want to volunteer for the operation move forward through the packed crowd, and the first to make it to the front are selected, save for a few spots that Swarford wants veteran soldiers to fill. Unfortunately, few of them volunteered and have to be ordered to go. The last matter is the General that will accompany them. When reminded of it, only one person stands to meet Swarford, General Harper. The same Harper that stayed completely quiet while all his peers voiced their criticism of the President's plan to control the silos. No matter, a volunteer is a volunteer. With everything ready, Swarford announces the deployment will be at 1700 hours, enough time to get the trains working to operate during twilight. So the troops begin requisitioning the supplies they need and packing their gear. Given the presence of power armor units, there's no use traveling light. Speed won't matter. General Swarford also mandates everyone carry twice the normal amount of water. For the safety of the soldiers, of course, but also in case they encounter civilians who will no doubt need it. The knowledge that this effort is effectively pointless as almost all the survivors encountered would die regardless of water charity does not elude Swarford. Yet, he still tries in vain to justify it to himself as inspiring trust towards the soldiers in the few survivors that do indeed survive. Survivors that hopefully will bring that news to others. Of course, not knowing that the soldiers are operating under a still fully intact government, but any little bit helps. Besides, it's not like the Enclave doesn't have ample supply of water. Hell, if the resort were to be turned into a full base, water supply would be one of the few non-existent problems.
3: This is Sergeant Tanner, I need immediate medical. My men are wounded and we're immobile.
2: We're on Interstate 59, just north of Sutton. Can anyone hear me? Chapter 3,
0: Tools of War When the clock finally strikes 5pm, the three squads, General Harper, and his escort leave the bunker, moving quickly so as not to be seen near the bunker, but there's no one to be seen anyway. They must all be hiding inside. Making it to the White Spring Station, Team Alpha splits off and quickly disappears into the tree line, while Bravo and Charlie begin following the tracks north, putting many of the soldiers on edge with the complete lack of cover. Coming up on the rail yard, after a cautious but swift walk, it's immediately clear there's a lot of work to be done. The train yard can only be described as a complete mess. Obviously the workers didn't exactly finish their shift before abandoning this place, explaining why the train cars are littered all around, but one of the buildings, it seems as though something had exploded in it, spraying rubble everywhere and collapsing a wall on one of the engines. The power-armoured soldiers begin moving around the various train cars that block the paths of the engines, while the rest search around for controls to the turntable. Entering the train shed, the soldiers are surprised to see a man still living. Upon sight of them, he starts pleading for help. Some debris seems to be pinning him to the floor, so the soldiers quickly remove it to reveal a large piece of metal sticking through his leg. They could help him, but it would use up finite supplies. The soldiers called General Harper in for his make of the situation. He asks the man who he is and why he's here. He explains in a hoarse voice that he is an engine operator and that he was trapped underneath the rubble when the bombs went off. While his colleagues all quickly fled, he couldn't move. Harper thinks, then he offers the man a deal. <sighs> You're a driver, and you need medical attention. I have medical attention and I need a driver. So why don't we both benefit here?" With little other options, the man quietly nods, prompting Harper to gesture for a medic to help him. Even with the help of the engine driver operating the equipment, it still takes another few hours to move everything out of the way and clear the rubble. With night having fallen already, many of the soldiers complain that Alpha Team has probably already made it to their silo, and that they have. Yet with no one visible top side of the facility, they dig in and wait for further orders. While back at the train yard, Bravo and Charlie are preparing to leave, with the train driver manning the south train, and one of the engineers having been given a basic course by the driver manning the northern one, and in synchronisation they head off towards their objective. It's not too long before Bravo team has to stop as they come up on a massive train derailment. This must be one of the obstacles the general mentioned. Suddenly, the soldiers start taking fire from an unknown source. The first soldier to look out the train car takes a bullet to the shoulder. Acting quickly, the squad leader orders the power armor units to take out the enemy. The ironclad soldiers immediately leap out of the train car, landing on the trembling earth beneath them. Swiftly raising their weapons to move forward, they snake through the debris of the crash, rapidly clearing each corner and frantically looking around trying to spot the enemy. Finally, as one of the soldiers makes it past an overturned car, he instinctively dives back to cover and yells,
1: Sarge, they're robots, military models.
0: Understanding the call, the squad leader rushes out of the train car too, dodging and weaving through cover until reaching the front soldier, at which point he steps out of cover while yelling, HOLD FIRE! As the robots pause, he quickly identifies himself to them and they promptly switch off from combat mode. They must have been activated when the train crashed but the sergeant sees they could still be useful. He orders the robots to assist them in their mission, so the robots load up into the train cars, much to the annoyance of the soldiers they were just shooting at. The soldiers then take the next half hour to clear the tracks, pushing crates and tipping over cars until it's clear. Both Bravo and Charlie team proceed to go through this process multiple more times before they each reach their destination, with Charlie being an hour ahead of Bravo. Once Charlie arrives at the factory that hides the silo beneath it, the soldiers pour out of the cars and sweep through the building, making sure it's secure, and inviting the general in after confirmation of no threats. Harper finds the elevator down to the silo and proceeds down with his escort. Coming out of the elevator, the facility is exceptionally quiet. Completely aware that he needs to be escorted by the base personnel, Harper looks around for a way to contact them, and sees a terminal sitting on a desk accessing it he finds something he certainly did not expect an evacuation warning dated a week ago radioactive leak from the missile still in effect clearly this was not a viable option returning to the surface harper confirms the facility is empty and won't be of any use with this confirmation the soldiers first plant explosives on the elevator then continue to plant them on all the supports of the building and once everyone is far enough away from it, the charges are blown and the building collapses. On to the next one then. The soldiers load up and head in the direction of Bravo. Meanwhile, Bravo team is just arriving the end of the tracks at one of the ski resort stations. Although now well into the night, within only a minute what looks to be tourists from the ski resort are rushing down to see what the source of the noise is, With the still-powered station lights illuminating the soldiers, the vacationers swarm the soldiers, no doubt mistaking them to be a rescue force. As the hopeful-looking civilians begin to ask what the soldiers are doing at the station, none of them can muster the courage to say they're not there to help the civilians, but in fact to find tools to continue waging war with. Finally, the squad leader speaks up, telling the civilians to head to Morgantown, and all of them automatically accept his orders obviously believing them to be actual thought-out advice rather than a split-second decision. And as many of the vacationers begin to ask how long they have to pack before leaving, clearly meaning they believe the soldiers will be escorting them, the squad leader has to come up with another lie. Quickly asserting that they have to search for other survivors, the vacationers' expressions drop to disappointment, as in unison they all begin complaining about their inability to traverse the wilderness. Feeling guilty, the sergeant hands them a map, and the rest of the soldiers also feel obligated to give them their extra water. Before any more complications can arise, the sergeant orders his men in the direction of the silo, leaving two men and the robots to guard the train. One long, difficult walk through the mountains later, Bravo reaches their destination, finding no activity in the area but a great many footprints heading away from the silo. Not a good sign. Hours pass before Team Charlie finally makes it to the northern end of the line, with the soldiers left behind from Bravo quickly sending them to the silo before the tourists come back down. Following the same path as Bravo, Charlie soon reaches the silo with General Harper, and repeating the same process, heads down into the bunker. Not expecting much from this visit either, given the tracks leading from the exit, but to his amazement, a young soldier, barely 20, stands to greet him as he enters, and as Harper asks a status report, Private Jeffers, as he identifies himself, goes on for the next 10 minutes, explaining that their general never arrived, so everyone else left before any orders came in, while he stayed to continue the fight. Harper, still unsure whether the private is just that patriotic or just that stupid, or both, commends him. The private salutes proudly and returns to his post while Harper leaves. Well, there's at least one viable site. Harper orders Bravo to hold their position while Charlie escorts him to Alpha. By the time Charlie reaches Alpha, the sun is already hovering high into the sky, and once again the site is secured with no trouble. Now completely unsure of what to expect in the silo, Harper enters, only to find a fully staffed silo, general included, although the soldiers claim he should be court-martialed for his fumbling of the launch. So the communication does work, it's just down to dumb luck the missiles didn't fire. Oh well, nothing can be done right now, so he informs the silo staff to remain at their posts until further notice. At least there's one reliable site. So finally, Harper, accompanied by Charlie Team, makes the long track back to the bunker to inform the rest of what they found. Swarford, despite Harper's objections, orders him to retrieve the missile from Site Bravo and scuttle the facility the same as Site Charlie. The next morning, Harper reluctantly heads out of the bunker, still escorted by Charlie Team. Wanting to get things over and done with as quickly as possible, wastes no time in getting to site Bravo and ordering Jeffers outside, just to watch the silo get destroyed. As he thinks to himself, what a waste. Chapter Four, Remains. With the silo situation sorted out, and thankfully quickly at that, Swarford informs the civilian government they can resume their duties, which still won't be much considering the state of things. They're more akin to janitors with the keys to everything than the actual government officials they're supposed to be. Nonetheless, there's much to do. Control of the region starts with control of logistics. In other words, points of interest need to be secured for the Enclave to gain a foothold. The cabinet may have some insight, but at its core it's still a military operation. Swarford begins throwing around ideas of moving into the cities and establishing order, much to the dismay of the other generals, especially Harper. Even General Beck shows his dislike of the idea, prompting Swarford to backtrack to points of interest that will benefit the region as a whole to be under Enclave control. Swarford points out places they've managed to make contact with military forces. We have made contact with multiple surviving units
2: that were mobile prior to the detonations. The few fixed positions we've been able to contact have been Camp Dawson, a platoon stationed at the Monongah Power Plant, and the remaining Air National Guard at Wade Airport. It's my opinion that we should set rally points for the surviving troops, and then deploy our own troops to the air wings at Wade Airport and at Morgantown if they're still alive, allowing them to provide aid via air to the largest population centers. As for Rotoga, well, there's been a situation there. The
0: city's already been evacuated. In response, Hoppe pricks up and annoyedly states, we have less than 200 men here and a few scattered units out in the field. We can't afford to be going on humanitarian missions into enemy territory. The only viable option is to evacuate the military personnel from the cities, set the rally point at Camp Dawson, and prepare a strategy from there. Around half of the generals also speak up in support as the other half disagree with Harper, with Beck breaking the tie between the two sides in favour of Harper. It seems that the loosely organised democracy has decided. Swalford quickly invites Hopper to speak with him privately, as the rest begin drawing up plans. What the hell is wrong with you? This idea you have, that you can somehow save everyone, needs to stop. We are at war. Sacrifices need to be made.
2: The day I give up on the people of this country is the day I give up on this country. I've read your file. I know what you've done, and I won't tolerate that. These are American citizens, not Reds. Trust me, Swafford.
0: These people you value so much, they'll turn on you. I know because I've seen it happen. I've seen people for what they truly are. And what is that supposed to mean? Doesn't matter. It's about Alaska, isn't it? Don't. Harper mockingly salutes Swofford as he returns to the planning room. The finalisation of the mobilisation plan consists of a force larger than the previous mission, composed of an even mix of rookies and veterans, selected rather than volunteered. The plan will be followed according to Harper's outline, but with the added objective for the team at Wade Airport to check on the nearby Camp McClintock Training Centre. The troops leave the sanctuary of the bunker in the afternoon of October 25th, splitting into two platoons of 20 with exclusively light armour, as the focus is on reaching the destinations as fast as possible. The Wade Airport team begins their long walk west to the city, while the Morgantown team starts the invariably shorter walk to the train yard, now having been transformed into an Enclave outpost, with the train engineer deciding to stay in the Enclave's employment. Having seen the soldiers off from the bunker, Harper heads back to the war room, only to be stopped halfway there by a strange looking man. A man he's seen maybe once or twice around the bunker, it's hard to tell. It's clear he's out of place in the bunker, but who is he? And as Harper's mind passes through the various options, it hits him. The suit, the sly look, the face perfect for fitting into a crowd, fucking D.I.A. Harper lets out a heavy, half-withheld sigh and condescendingly inquires.
2: And who exactly are you? Agent Gray, D.I.A. And what is it you want? Well, General, I specialize
1: in ending matters that can't be resolved through normal means. And I notice you seem to have a... problem with General Swafford. I believe I can be of some help. You need only say the word, and the good General... Well, let's just say he won't be getting in your way
0: anymore. Gray promptly skulks back into the shadows he emerged from, leaving Harper thinking as he returns to the War Room to track the progress of the Platoons. The soldiers headed for Morgantown finally begin the long trek to the city after a multiple hour train ride, devoid of anything noteworthy, save for maybe the number of faces staring desperately at them as they pass the stations. The same cannot be said for the second platoon, coming upon many desperate survivors along their route. Some leave after being given water, but many more only leave at the sight of guns pointed towards them. It's clear to the soldiers things are only going to get worse, as if they weren't bad enough already. When the 1st platoon arrives at Morgantown Airport after nightfall, the destruction is clear even in the scattered illumination of the few working lights. The remains of some sort of fight are evident. The soldiers search around, finding bodies strewn everywhere, military and civilian alike, as well as the torn remains of aircraft painting the tarmac. Then suddenly, a gun goes off and the soldiers all frantically look around, Seeing one of their comrades convulsing on the ground, they all run to find cover amongst the aircraft wreckage. More shots begin flying past them from an unknown position. With the light armor they're equipped with, no one dares to peek out from the safety of their hiding spot. Finally, one of them pulls out a flare gun and sticks his arm blindly over cover, firing it in the direction of the gunfire. To perfect success. The gunfire stops and highlighted figures are seen ducking down on the roof of the building 50 meters in front of the soldiers. Now able to act as a proper unit, half of the soldiers run forward while the other half peek out of cover, laying suppressing fire into the area in front of them. The soldiers running forward hastily switch on their gun mounted torches, ready their rifles and signal the others to hold their fire. Climbing up onto the roof, two of the soldiers take a spray of bullets from the bandits falling to the ground, while their comrade's hail of bullets tear apart the flesh of the attackers, erasing the threat.
1: Watson, status report. Sir, Corporal O'Brien was only hit in the armor, but I'm afraid Corporal Jacobs was hit in the neck and bled out while we were engaging the bandits, and Private May was hit in the eye. He died on impact. Damn it! May was only a fucking kid! Alright, search the buildings, I want this place clear.
0: The soldiers move into the building, sweeping them with machine-like efficiency, finding nothing but bodies until coming upon a barricaded room. Not wanting to take any chances, the platoon leader orders charges to be planted on the doors. With the charges planted, the soldiers stack up behind one another on both sides of the door. The detonation trigger is pulled and with a thunderous boom the doors fly open. Swarming into the room, the soldiers paint the darkness with their flashlights to form the picture of a white room with medical tools all over and multiple bruised and bandaged people coughing severely, all wearing some variation of military uniform. Seeing the uniforms, the men ease their stances and lower their rifles, recognizing the occupants of the room to be friendlies. Once the dust settles and the survivors stop coughing, the platoon leader asks for an explanation of the events that led to the destruction outside.
1: What happened here? Why is there a battlefield outside and why were we shot at?
0: A man on a makeshift operating table wearing a flight suit and bandages around his leg is the first to respond. We were running flight training
3: when it happened. One of the bombs. They exploded in range of the city. Most of our birds in the city were caught in the blast. After that, people came swarming here trying to get away from it, most of them armed. We tried to control the situation, but someone—could've been them, could've been us—started shooting. Everyone else followed suit. It was a massacre for everyone. Plenty of them tried to rush the birds, most of us tried to bug out, too. Dunno how many made it. We tried too, but got cut off and had to barricade ourselves in here.
1: Can you fly?
0: Yes, but the
3: only birds left
0: will be in maintenance. The platoon leader motions for the engineer to head out of the building, and realizing what he's planning, the pilot offers a man identified to be an aircraft mechanic to help. The two men immediately begin trying to repair one of the remaining aircraft, clearly working out of their depth and taking excessive amounts of time to perform simple tasks, time that they do not have. As the platoon lookouts take the higher ground in the flight control tower, only then do they see the flames. All across the city, burning ravenously. Not only that, but a truck, its back full of men, armed, coming directly towards the airport. Whether to investigate the gunshots or just by coincidence, it doesn't matter what their intentions, the soldiers aren't going to take that chance. The sentries open fire on the truck, visibly hitting many of the passengers before it violently swerves away and speeds off. To the surprise of the sentries, After being informed of the event, rather than berating them for opening fire first, the platoon leader commends them, and sends them straight back to lookout. Now that their presence is known, it's almost certain that more will come searching. And hopefully, hopefully they're gone by then. Time ticks by as the aircraft is repaired and the sentries sit as still as gargoyles, carefully watching all that lies in front of them for hours on end yet the thick darkness of night is still too much for the naked eye to penetrate. And then, in a matter of milliseconds, the controlled tower windows shatter as something whizzes past spraying glass everywhere. The two sentries drop to the floor, fully aware of what shattered the windows. Sniper! One of them yells, alerting the rest of the platoon. The two switch on their night vision scopes and begin peeking in and out of their cover as shots fly past them frantically searching around through their scopes until one of them is knocked to the floor, removing his helmet to find it luckily was only a graze. The other sentry, predicting the sniper's assumption of death, moves to his comrade's former position and peeks out, finally shouting for everyone to hear.
1: I see him! Behind the car on the monitor!
0: Unable to finish, as a bullet punches through his skull and paints the room with blood, the second sentry begins firing in the direction of the sniper using the suppression to slowly find the exact position, yet still unable to hit him behind the rail car. Whilst preoccupied with the sniper, the sentry also spots vehicles, each carrying at least four people, appear on the road below, charging towards the airport. Weighing up the options, the sentry opts to jerk the gun away from the sniper and towards the fast approaching vehicles and empty a long burst into the front one barreling it over, but also giving the sniper the opportunity to land a shot right through his forearm, forcing the sentry to to the floor and stagger down the stairs to the rest of his unit, where the lieutenant is arguing with the mechanic over launching a clearly not fully repaired bird, while the others rush to the gates to hold off the attackers. After a lot of cursing, the mechanic finally gives in and the pilot begins starting the aircraft as the lieutenant orders all the base survivors onto it and upon seeing the wounded sentry orders him in as well, simultaneously ordering his men to throw smoke on the enemy position, giving the bird enough cover to take off and disappear into the night sky. He again orders his men to use smoke, but this time at their own feet as they sprint away from the airport into the tree line, successfully escaping the bandits, but regretfully leaving their comrades' bodies behind. Chapter five, a growing divide. The sun is already starting to shine over the horizon as the second platoon stands minutes away from Wade Airport, yet all of them standing still for 10 minutes now, the pool of blood drenching their boots. There's no point blaming the private for it. He acted fast and competently. It's just a shame the kids had to be caught in the crossfire. No one could have predicted it would escalate like that. It's clear she was hysterical but no one expected her to have a gun. What's done is done. The soldiers sullenly move on and leave the gruesome sight behind them, and to their relief, don't encounter anyone else on the final hike to the airport. The arrival at Wade Airport is much quieter than the soldiers expected. No one trying to bust through the gates, no one shooting each other over water. It becomes clear only when the airport is further explored and the remaining guardsmen are found. Being led by the guardsmen to what is clearly the highest ranking officer, the man introduces himself as Major Jones. Enlightening the soldiers, he responds to the questions posed, explaining the unfortunate fact that much of the air wing deserted after the detonations, leaving around 100 personnel left plus the 20 or so that came down from Camp McClintock. As with the questions of why the airport remains so silent, he simply directs them outside and instructs them to observe the city below. To their surprise, the city is completely intact. There's a few scattered fires raging, but much less than would be expected, and the faint sound of sirens coming from all over the city permeates the air, which, given the current situation, is an exceptionally good sign. As if predicting the next question that would be asked, the Major asserts that no missiles landed in the range of the city. Content with the explanation given, the platoon leader, Captain Jackson, officially relays the order to the Major for the air wing to be transferred to Camp Dawson. Upon hearing the news, it becomes clear to Jackson that the Major wasn't expecting such orders, and even states to Jackson that he will not give those orders to his men, pointing out the dire situation the citizens of Charleston are in. Jackson looks at him with contempt, accepting the Major's willful disobedience to be a formal resignation and disrespectfully walks away from him to give the orders himself. Sure of what Jackson intends to do, the Major runs after him, attempting to convince him otherwise to no avail. Calling the base personnel together, despite Major Jones's very vocal protests, the Captain officially gives the order to withdraw to Camp Dawson. Most begin moving to prepare for the journey, yet a number of them, more than the captain expected, seem to be convinced by the major's misled ideas of heroics and mercy. Having led part of the flock astray, the shepherd only becomes emboldened, condemning those that sided with Jackson, who himself sees the rifles of his platoon slowly raise against the traitors as the outcome of the standoff lies in uncertainty. Not breaking eye contact with the Major, Jackson gives the signal for his men to lower their weapons as he says with utter disdain in his voice,
3: If they want to run,
0: then so
1: be it. We have no use for cowards.
0: and turns away with the rest of his soldiers to oversee the evacuation. Upon inspection of the remaining equipment, it's quite impressive. The impact from much of the air wing deserting can be seen, yet plenty still remains, including four working birds and even a bomber. The aircraft are hastily loaded up with as much as they can carry and begin lifting off into the sky while the combat personnel leave on foot with the platoon of soldiers, not giving a care to those that decided to stay. Making their way back to the bunker through the secluded mountain trails, the soldiers begin to pass many a terrible sight. With each mile travelled, more and more bodies are passed, some ripped apart with teeth and claws, some just with bullets. Luckily, those responsible are not encountered on the journey back to the bunker, but their return isn't exactly pleasant. Captain Jackson is harshly reprimanded for bringing outside personnel back to the bunker. Although Jackson attempts to defend himself, he is reminded the bunker is now at full capacity and won't be able to handle any more people from this point. Now with both platoons back and their mission reports submitted, they can be analysed the top officers gather in the war rooms and begin discussing the events.
1: It's unfortunate that Morgantown seems to be in complete chaos, but at least Charleston shows signs of promise.
0: Although Swarford shows disappointment in the complete abandonment of even the idea of moving forces to Morgantown, he successfully steers the discussion to setting up in Charleston. So it's agreed. After we have gained a firm grip of the remaining necessary installations scattered throughout the state, we will begin the process of reclaiming the city. Agreed. Agreed. The next thing on the agenda is to check the status of Camp Dawson. Making radio contact with the base, the report is undeniably good, yet still doesn't escape the misfortune that is the world now. A number of personnel at the base have deserted their posts, and while many of the mobile units out in the field and all the aircraft from Wade Airport have arrived safely at the base, other units, including the one from Morgantown Airport, have not made it. Still, the base reports a number of nearly 600 combat personnel, including two special forces units. Intent on keeping the power grid operational, General Swarford orders a bird full of supplies and personnel to reinforce the platoon already at Mononga Power Plant, but is stopped short from requesting the same to the other two major plants in the region. Why shouldn't we secure the other plants? They're automated, remember? It's not necessary to secure them unless something goes wrong. We only want Mononga to ensure we have excess power. But what if something does go wrong? And shouldn't we be rerouting power to areas that need it most? The people of Charleston should be able to handle that on their own. And Thunder Mountain? That's too far out to be viable. Especially considering the situation in Watoga. That leaves very few people relying on the supply from there. So what? We just leave these people to die because it's a waste of time to save them? Will you quit it with that moral high ground bull crap? I already told you. We are at war. Stop saying that! We need to help these people, not shoot them! The two generals continue to argue back and forth until Beck steps in.
1: Both of you stop it. Fighting won't help anyone. But General Harper is right. We need to be careful with our resources, and we have to accept the fact that we need to be in a combat-ready state against everyone around us.
0: Almost all of the officers show their agreement in different levels towards Beck's statement. Prompting Swarford to express his disappointment.
2: Three days, only three days for all of you to declare war on your own countrymen, as if nothing this army was built on matters anymore. This will defend. Remember when that meant something? Because I don't know if I do anymore.
0: And Swarford sits down, not speaking another word. The meeting finally concludes with commando units from Site J being ordered to monitor the largest population centers of the region, as well as search the last known positions of field
2: operations. Annie, if you can hear me, I'll find you. Just stay where you are. I'm gonna try and get to higher ground.
0: Chapter 6. Siwis As the days of October wane and turn to November, The Whites Ring Bunker shuts itself off from the world, blocking anything coming in or out, save for the radio signals sent to Camp Dawson, as they become the hand the bunker uses to carry out their will, sending birds all over the state to rescue the few and far between that still consider themselves soldiers of the United States. But with each trip comes more mouths to feed. Worse yet, the civilians begin flocking from the city. Although the base refuses to allow anyone in, The people still begin piling up outside, eventually setting up camps, exacerbating the food problem as many of the base personnel repeatedly provide them with food and water. The officers try to overlook the disregard for orders, yet it can't be ignored for long, as the food situation becomes worse with each new arrival. Predictions reported to the White Spring place the remaining food supply at two months worth, provided proper rationing is practiced and the inflow of people stops. This prompts the military to cease all field operations from Camp Dawson and finally stop pushing the cabinet members to the side, and actually seek their help, specifically the Secretary of Agricultures. Although the newly appointed Secretary is clearly not completely comfortable in his job as of yet, much to the annoyance of the generals that are now forced to rely on him, eventually, however, he does prove useful as he reveals his aspect of the plan to rely on a special vault containing nothing less than the entire collection of all-known plant seeds, as well as a geck, whatever that is. It's probably the best thing that they could have hoped for, better actually, but it does little to solve the current problem. It will still take months to grow new crops, months that they might not have if things get any worse. Action needs to be taken swiftly and concisely. Whitespring Command immediately authorizes movement on the vault. Within three hours, a bird carrying a squad of Alpha Force operators is soaring over the Quaggy swampland towards the vault. Coming to the coordinates given, the pilot spots a clearing in the trees and begins landing. There's not much in the area but a bus, some sort of guard shack and a cave. That must be it. The soldiers unload from the bird and enter the cave. On the inside of the large open area sits a massive metal door with the number 94 inscribed on it. This is definitely it. Using the code provided to open the large mechanical door, the soldiers cautiously enter the underground facility, well aware of what they're going to retrieve, yet uncertain of what they'll find inside. Once far enough inside to see that people actually inhabit the vault, the people begin recoiling away from the soldiers. As the smell of unwashed skin and sweat mixed with cannabis penetrates the nostrils of the operators and what looks like the leader of these people emerges to greet them, it becomes painfully clear what's going on here. Hippies. So this is who was saved from the apocalypse. Speaking slowly and clearly so as not to confuse the lower life forms, the soldiers inquire about the location of the seeds. Changing expression from caution to hostility, the leader starts speaking in tongues, something about defilers of the earth or other. The soldiers just walk away, inciting the leader to motion what appears to be some sort of order to the drones, saying something along the lines of, seize the invaders, but they just keep on caring, So the soldiers keep on walking, exploring the facility in full, finding the seed bank, as well as the, uh, geck. With confirmation of the goods, half of them return outside, passing the still huddling residents, retrieving the storage containers and bringing them to the seed bank where they're filled to the brim with various crop seeds. A mission successful, the soldiers load up on the bird with the seeds in hand, returning to Camp Dawson. The soldiers return to the camp hopeful of their new outcome, yet still unaware to the degree of the trouble they face. As a farm is hastily created to house the mass of seeds brought in, the inflow of refugees does not slow. The base personnel, still in the dark as to the extent of the food shortage in hopes of preventing unrest, continue to give portions of their rations to the growing mass of refugees, despite harshening punishments for such actions. So much so that the Whitespring Bunker is forced to take drastic measures and half their own rations to send the extra to Camp Dawson. Although, as the days go on, the birds start coming under fire, mainly over the area around the top of the world radio station, yet the pilots are given orders not to engage, and the stress from flying the birds on transport operations on top of retrieving surviving units cannot be ignored. Eventually, November begins to near its end, and it becomes clear the crops at Dawson are suffering from lack of proper agricultural tools and knowledge. Something has to be done, and fast. Yet once again, no one steps up to do what Harper sees as necessary. Taking it into his own hands, he consults with General Beck privately on taking action.
2: Harper, to what do I owe the pleasure? Sir, I'd like to discuss the current
0: situation with Camp Dawson.
1: Speak your mind, soldier. I think we should abandon it. Abandon it? With what cause?
0: We're running our birds into the ground, flying them back and forth like this, and it's only a matter of time until they get shot down. We just can't sustain our main force so far away from the heart of our operation.
1: So you propose we move them here? That still wouldn't solve the food problem.
0: That can be solved later. The problem right now is the civilians near the base. The civilians? Yes, we should have shot at them when they first started arriving. But no one had the guts, and now there's hundreds of them just outside the base, only being kept alive by the few handouts they received. These people are being kept in check exclusively by the thought that we are going to help them. So what happens when our food situation worsens? What happens when those handouts stop?
1: This is a costly order. I can't give it lightly.
0: Sir, I would not recommend it unless I believe it to be 100% necessary. And it doesn't have to be all at once either. You can move the mechanized units to Mononga under the guise of reinforcing it, then the supplies. You can move them here on the return trips from the supply runs to Dawson, and then, only once you are completely sure, you can order the evacuation.
1: Very well, Harper. I'll begin the preparation shortly. I just hope to god you're right about this.
0: There's one more thing, sir. I... I think it's best we keep this between us. Swafford and the others, they don't have the foresight to see what has to be done and I fear they'll only complicate the situation. Harper, persistent as always, receives his wish. The following day, Beck himself travels to the camp to give the order in person and ensure its completion. The order is met with very clear disappointment by the camp's leadership, however at the same time, understanding. Staying would only doom both parties. At least if the military leaves the civilians, they might be able to scrape by off the meager farm sitting inside the base. Perhaps some of the civilians even have the agricultural skills to make the farm flourish. Maybe that's something the military should have done before. Look for people who could help them instead of shutting everyone out. Oh well, too late to change what's done. Aiming to ensure the complete secrecy of the order, the officers follow the outline given to them by General Beck, mobilizing the mechanized units to the Monongah outpost under the guise of protecting high value assets, taking extreme caution in the very mention of its existence. For if anything about this operation were to leak out of the chain of command, or even within the chain of command, it could put everyone at risk. But thankfully it seems all is quiet from all sides after this order is given. The civilians and soldiers alike pay little to no attention to the constant flow of tanks and cars leaving the base. Only once the base is near completely exhausted of all its mechanized force do some eyes begin to take notice. More so of the amount of soldiers that are accompanying the force, yet still little comes of it. Nothing more than passing thoughts of approval of something actually getting done, whatever that may be. The second phase of the plan catches even less attention, as the armories and storehouses are slowly emptied and quietly loaded onto the birds that bring in weekly supplies from command. It will still take a few weeks to empty everything fully, time enough to figure out how to effectively evacuate the base on short notice. The officer corps take the next few days to plan out a rapid aerial evacuation and begin mandating it to be practiced twice weekly. Complications still arise, however, The evacuation time practiced is sitting at a very sloppy 20 minutes after three attempts. The number of personnel still at the base will also require all aircraft to be at full capacity, including the bomber brought from Wade Airport, which of course will need a runway to land on. General Beck stays unwilling to reveal their evacuation location yet, but assures them there's adequate space, in a rather unconvincing tone. The last complication is more of a disappointing reality that has to be accepted. When the order is indeed given, some will undoubtedly refuse to follow it. With little deliberation, the officers at Dawson deem it to not be worth spending time convincing these would-be deserters otherwise. Anyone that refuses to follow orders will be left behind. There's no room left for half-hearted patriots. As the last day comes and the officers watch the final bird from command leave with what little material goods remain in the base, they prepare to go to sleep. Many of them thinking of those who've been lost, to the nuclear apocalypse, to desertion and... Yeah, there it is. The nightly suicides. Hmm, only one this time. Nevertheless, the distant gunfire from the impromptu refugee camp, now surely housing more than the base itself. Well, that should be enough to satiate anyone's nostalgia for the long nights on deployment in a foreign war zone. At 3am, the alarm clocks ring all over the camp, waking the officers and as they nervously leave the emptied out rooms, begin the rapid evacuation. Because of the need for secrecy, the evacuation order is given in person, flowing down the chain of command perfectly, for a time at least. It quickly becomes clear many of the soldiers are less than eager to participate in what can only be another of many drills. The weeks of rationing and being woken up in the middle of the night don't help the situation either. For many of the units, it takes General Beck's presence to convince them of the severity of the situation, causing an incredible commotion and likely compromising the stealthy nature of the operation. For at the same time, murmurs begin to start in the refugee camp. How it could have got out is anyone's guess. Maybe someone overheard the yelling from one of the barracks, or maybe someone is leaking information from the inside. But somehow it got out and the rumors are spreading at an alarming pace. Within five minutes, swarms of hysterical people are gathering at the gates asking for answers. Security personnel desperately request orders and are firmly told not to fire. The guards stand firm with their rifles readied, facing down the growing number of civilians that appear to be calming down, completely unaware that the rumours are actually true, and that as they stare each other down, the poorly executed evacuation plan is still in the process. When the first of the pilots and passengers load into the birds, unknowing as to the need for secrecy, to the horror of the officers, they see those birds start to power up. The many screams to stop are drowned out in the fierce wind of the propellers. It's already too late. The match is lit. As the first wave of the birds lift up into the sky, with two-thirds of the base still evacuating, those pressed up against the gates and fences point out the fleeing birds, and it sends them into a frenzy. The proverbial floodgates are opened as desperate people start swarming in. Before General Beck can issue any commands, the guards begin firing into the air. Unfortunately, this only adds fuel to the fire, as many of the people rushing the gates are armed. The sound of gunshots prompts them to return fire against the perceived attack.
1: Front gate, fall back to our position! I repeat... Shit, do we have any tear gas left? No sir, we moved it on. Then just give me that rifle. Sir? I said give me that rifle.
2: I can't allow you to do that, sir.
1: Like hell you can! I'm not leaving until everyone else is on those birds. Now go help with the evacuation! You three, on me. We need to buy some time.
0: The base quickly turns into a war zone, with the general and a small number of others on the front line, all varying in degrees of their triggered discipline towards unarmed civilians. Even with automatic rifles, there's too many armed people to fight, and in the interest of not being flanked, the defenders repeatedly fall back, all while the rest of the base personnel are being evacuated, yet trouble cannot contain itself to one front. With knowledge now of the aggressive action being taken against the civilians, some personnel refuse to follow orders. Worse yet, some even take up arms in support of the people. Most are mercilessly gunned down the moment they lay a hand on their service weapon. But the delay to the evacuation and the subsequent strain on the defenders is still felt. 3.30. 3.30 is the time Swafford sees on the dim light of his bedside clock as he is hurriedly awoken by the knocking on his door and when opened, he's greeted by a young soldier covered in sweat, who informs the General to make his way down to the war room. When Swarford moves to get changed into his uniform, the young soldier anxiously tells him it can't wait, and actually physically pulls the General by the arm towards the war room. Entering the room still in his pyjamas and watching as the young soldier races off to no doubt retrieve others, Swarford loudly inquires, What the hell
2: is going on here?
3: General, installation... Camp Dawson is currently under evacuation protocol. evacuation Why? It appears the civilians squatting outside the camp's perimeter have started an armed conflict with the camp's soldiers. We regret to inform you that General Beck is sadly among those killed in the attack.
0: Guess you're in charge now. Comes a voice from the corner of the room. It's Harper. In full uniform, no less. Swofford ignores his snide remark and returns to his
2: conversation. Modis, activate the Kovac Muldoon. Set for a barrage 50 meters west of the gate.
3: General, a strike at that distance is unlikely to prove lethal.
2: Damn it, Modis! It's not supposed to be lethal. Now do it. Target locked. Now fire on confirmed evacuated parts close to the attackers.
3: Target locked. General, all have been evacuated except for the aircraft on the runway.
2: All right, sweeping fire between the attackers and the runway. Target.
3: Locked. Confirmation received. All units have been evacuated from the base. Hmm. It seems we're receiving a signal from the retreating units. They're requesting a rally point. Lord, plant my
0: feet on higher ground. General? <sighs> Set rally point. White Spring. We're going to war.